Everything's falling into place I'm right where I should be We grow out of this world in exactly the same way that the apples grow on the apple tree. The tides of life are led me here. What's the meaning of the universe? What's the meaning of a flea? It's just there. That's it. And your own meaning is that you're there. And that's why I'm not scared. The destiny of the species is unfolding with the logic of a dream. I know the answer will appear. Please. Hello and welcome to another Uncomplication. I'm Ryan and I have a very special episode for you today. We're gonna talk about death. Don't go, don't go, stay right there. Don't change the channel. Don't switch podcasts. This is going to be a good conversation. I just finished reading this book, The Lost Art of Dying, and it completely changed not only my view of dying, but it changed the whole way that I look at my life in the context of where I am now, where I'm going, and understanding that our lives are bracketed, that there is an end. And knowing that, we can start living well. And so this is not a podcast, a conversation about death. This is really about living. It's about living now. It's about um, focusing on what we value. And it's about unearthing lost wisdom that for centuries was helping human beings find their place in their life, live lives with meaning in their community, uh, focused on the right things, and that that information has been lost. And fortunately, my guest today, Lydia Dugdale, has done a lot to unearth and repackage that lost wisdom for today's world. So this is going to be a challenging episode for a lot of people, I'm sure. Death is probably one of, if not the most challenging topics that we all have to face at some point in our lives. But if you can stick this out, if you can hear the conversation, and if you can invite into your own life this question about what it means to be a finite being, to be mortal, and to know that someday you are going to leave this world, how does that change how you're living right now? How does that help you practice and prepare to take care of those relationships, to be embedded in your community, and to die with the same grace with which you lived? So let's get into it. Thank you for listening. Here we go. In, in preparation for this conversation, I've been thinking a lot about how to introduce it because the topic itself, I think, causes a lot of people to scurry. And um, it's one of those conversations that in a sense is like, we need to talk type of conversation, which you always know is, uh, <laughs> oh no, I'm, I'm in for it. So I, w I was curious in your own life with this, um, you know, with the, the authorship of the book that, that you wrote, uh, how do you broach this subject with people? Uh, you know, if you're at a dinner party or, you're, or you want to kind of ease into this type of conversation, um, how do you typically break the ice on some of these fairly taboo or difficult topics? Yeah, sure. Well, Ryan, it's great to be here with you today and chat with you. Um, I'd say kind of the out of the gate answer is I have to read the audience and figure out mm -hmm. what they can handle, right? So, 
there are people, especially at cocktail parties, right? Where, you know, people say, oh, well, what do you work on? And I say, oh, I write about death. Um, if they can handle it, it can be very funny and we can have some laughs. And then usually I get a story about, you know, how grandmother just died or something, right? There's always, there's always that um, emotional sort of follow-up. Um, but there have been uh, people that I've misread uh, and uh, it's not gone so well. Um, interestingly, kids get it uh, mm. probably better than adults do. So kids, you know, kids see a mosquito and they swat at the mosquito and the mosquito's dead and it was alive and now it's dead. And there's sort of this intuitive uh, relationship to dying and death that kids have not learned to bracket yet. Uh, in the same way that adults have. Uh, as I think you know, I'm a primary care doctor, so I'm sort of, you know, the the GP, the, the doc you go to when you're sick. And part of my role in that capacity is to ask adults, particularly those who are kind of 50 and above, if they've thought about uh, who would make medical decisions for them if they got too sick, questions like that. And that's, in the clinical space, that's the way I usually begin. Because if if my patients are asked, do you want to talk to your doctor about end of life wishes? Invariably, they always say no. Uh, but if I say, hey, you know, Miss Smith, if you end up in the hospital with, you know, God forbid, COVID or flu or something, uh, who should we call to help guide our medical decision making? Well, then Miss Smith, that's not quite talking about her death, right? But it's just mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, this is, these aren't conversations to have in isolation. These are conversations to have in the context of community. And let's start before we even get to all that end of life stuff and, and the ventilator and all that. Let's just start by thinking about, you know, who's, who's with you? Who is going to help you think through these things? And then my second question with patients is always, um, okay, so you want, you know, you name it, your spouse, your brother, your friend. To, to be your next of kin, your emergency contact, even your healthcare decision maker, um, does he or she, do they know that this is what you would want? Have you ever talked to them about how you would like to engage healthcare if you were very sick? So that's sort of the second question. And then they'll, you know, they, they usually say, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then, <laughs> then that leads to like slowly, but surely we start working up to some of the medical questions, but then that is only, in my mind, uh, sort of a springboard for some of the bigger existential questions that- Yeah, as and, and, yeah. and I love that pivot into the existential, because for me, the interest is highly existential. Yeah. And um, I'm holding your book here. Your book is The Lost Art of Dying. And it literally jumped off the shelf at me when I was at a local uh, coffee shop, an independent bookstore, and when I brought it down to the register, my friend there who runs the bookshop, he said, I'm so glad you grabbed that book. Uh, when we brought that book into the shop, we actually had a whole conversation as a staff about whether it belonged, you know, on the shelf with the poetry or, or in the shop at all. And um, that it, it evoked even in its presence, this kind of existential question in the context of a coffee shop community. And for myself, uh, having just recently um, lost a, a close friend and been, you know, kind of in some of these zones of grief, I was very open and, re and receptive to it. But I think the message of a lot of this book is that these are questions, these are doors that we should open well before 
we're talking to our primary care physician, you know, looking at a, 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 a scary prog uh, prognosis or something like that, that these are questions that in olden times or in past cultures were woven into the fabric of life. And today they are um, literally so scary that we either don't talk about it or we run away from it or we shut down the conversation. So maybe as a way of just introducing you a little bit further in your career, um, I'd love to ask, why did you write this book? Yeah, so I um, I am sort of with you on the sense of gravitating toward the existential questions. I um, This is probably too much information, but when I read philosophy, which I do not infrequently, I tend to gravitate toward the existentialists. So it, it's interesting to me in reading philosophy that there are people you can read, and I think primarily of Soren Kierkegaard, who just writes about the human condition and these questions of uh, living and dying and fear and angst and despair in a way that connects with me. And I, it sounds funny to say, unless you, unless you spend some time reading philosophy, but there's, yeah, so the existentialists and kind of existential ways of looking at the world, you know, what do we mean by that? We mean really quite literally these questions of human existence, right? So um, those are uh, kind of thoughts and, and, and questions that have lurked in the background of my brain since I was a little kid, you know, kind of looking at the world and sizing up the world and wondering, you know, why it is. And then, so then you take that sort of orientation or framing or, I don't know, disposition, character type, whatever, and you add to that uh, being a medical doctor where my training, especially, although so much of my career has really been about engaging these questions with patients, because yes, there's the sort of straight up medical stuff, adjusting meds, tweaking this, tweaking that. But, but what really animates my care of patients, and I think what's really kept, what's really sustained me throughout a medical practice, which is, you know, not without tons of its own problems, is uh, the conversations with patients like this, you know, um, how do we think about our life in light of a terrible diagnosis? Why is it that it takes a terrible diagnosis to get us to think about our finitude when if one thing is certain in this life, it's that mortality is 100%, right? But why is it that we table that thought? But for me, as a primary care doctor, it'll be patient after patient. I remember one day kind of, oh, goodness, sitting in clinic and having, you know, sort of the brain tumor followed by, you know, the metastatic lung cancer followed by the woman whose life is just completely in shambles. And, you know, and of, of course, I, I don't re refer to my patients as, as the disease processes, but just to sort of paint a picture of how, you know, it's just a punch to the gut when someone you've been taking care of for so many years is now given this horrible diagnosis of, a, of a, a terrible kind of brain tumor or, you know, you name it. So, so the very, you know, practical day in and day out of having to care for patients whose lives are affected and disrupted by death, really by death, even before they're dead, right? It's this threat of death that shows up, you know, the the Grim Reaper in Hieronymus Bosch's paintings, right? Kind of knocking at the door um, where we, we're suddenly forced to kind of reevaluate everything. And for me, it's really been a privilege 
to be the sounding board for so many patients who are coming through the door, having to reevaluate everything, uh, because I'm I'm willing to have those conversations with them, um, not not in a sort of delight in their misfortunes way. I don't ever want anyone to think of it that 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 that's what I mean. But it really is a privilege to hmm. to have people sort of open up about their their anxieties, their existential anxieties, and then to to be able to enter into conversation with them. Um, it's just, it's, yeah, it's fantastic work. And then I guess specifically on death, why I started writing about death so that everything I just said is part of it. But, you know, as a trainee, I cared for patients who were literally um, decaying on life support. Mm -hmm. Their bodies were literally decomposing on life support. And it's a horrible feeling for docs and nurses to feel required to continue the administration, the application of life support hmm. to a, a person who, who is still alive, but very much decaying on the inside. And, and those are um, not infrequent. Uh, it's not every patient in the intensive care unit by any means. I'm not suggesting that. But we definitely have many of those those patients where the whole team is just so distressed. But especially in New York State, where I practice now, we're constrained by the law to continue um, so-called heroic measures if that's what the mm. patient or the family request. So, just feels 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 bad, you know. Yeah. Um, so, in in picking up this book and reading it, I mean, the title itself acknowledges that there is a body of wisdom that has been forgotten or replaced by uh, all of the advances of science and medicine and the fact that we can keep someone alive on life support on one hand seems miraculous, but in another uh, sense is um, kind of preventing us from getting back to some of these lost arts. Mm -hmm. And this book is, I think, a, a rewriting of the um, Ars Morendi, which uh, in, in hearing your stories and talking about some of these patients that uh, died highly medicalized, fairly grisly deaths with families that were, were uh, seeking this heroic, um, these heroic countermeasures to battle death. Um, talk a little bit about um, what that art of dying is and, 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 w and why it's been lost. Uh, who, who are the people that were living uh, and dying artfully, and what happened to that information? Yeah, so um, in the mid-1300s, the bubonic plague, also called the Black Death, swept across Western Europe. It started, we think, uh, in the East, um, perhaps in what is present-day China, and then was carried westward by rats uh, that would sort of migrate to urban centers. Fleas would bite the rats and um, take up the bacterium that the rats carried that caused black death, that causative agent of black death. And then the fleas would bite humans. Um, and historians have until last week um, estimated that perhaps as many as two thirds of the population of Western Europe died. And I say until last week, because there was just an article in the New York Times just last week that looks at pollen counts and suggests that perhaps that was an overestimate. Uh, still, this, this estimate of one-third to two-thirds of the population dying is based on records that were maintained in urban centers. Now, or, you know, I, I've been living in New York City through the COVID pandemic, and urban centers are definitely pl the place to go to get sick. No question. People live so densely 
that, um, you know, if there is a respiratory illness or if there is something carried by rats and fleas, you are at much greater risk in an urban center. So I think it's plausible uh, that a a large portion of urban uh, populations succumb to the Black Death or bubonic plague of the mid-1300s. Um, even if in rural areas, it wasn't quite one third to two thirds of the population. Suffice it to say, massive loss of life, right? And so this is Western Europe in the late Middle Ages. The leading uh, social authority at the time is is the church. This is before you have Catholics and Protestants. It's kind of the Western church. Uh, and, and even though, of course, there were non-religious folks and there were people of minority religions, this was kind of, th- these were the people who ran the show. So if there was a societal problem, you would go to your parish priest or you would go to the, like, the highest ranking priest you could get to to have the problem addressed. So you have people kind of digging out of several years of plague, uh, massive loss of life, huge social upset. Um, and the... The response of the people was, well, look, uh, if this comes back, whether it's another wave of bubonic plague or famine or war, we don't want to have to depend on priests to do the work of preparing us for death. After all, the priests weren't necessarily dependable during the last several years of plague. Some priests died in their care of their parishioners, but other priests, frankly, who were well-connected and didn't want to get sick, skipped town. They would go to the countryside villas of societal elite, and they could avoid the rats and the fleas, right? Um, so um, the, the, the people, the, there's sort of this lay cry for help, uh, for individual empowerment, if you will, in, in preparing for the inevitable. And the response of the church was initially nothing. And the reason why it was initially nothing is because in the late 1300s, the church had all kinds of political problems. They had two men and then later three men all simultaneously claiming to be the legitimate pope, Mm -hmm. which, you know, an operation like that is just not going to function to be able to, um, to, to come up with any kind of pastoral response, right? So ultimately, by the early 1400s, the church sort of meets to figure out this pope problem. And when they do, their first kind of agenda item is to address this recurrent kind of this refrain on the part of the laity for help in preparing for death. And out of this meeting called the Council of Constance, which met for four years uh, to try to resolve this Pope issue, uh, out of this meeting comes the very first iteration a handbook on the preparation for death. So the very first iteration of the Ars Moriendi, uh, which is the word you mentioned, Ars Moriendi being Latin for the art of dying. And what happens, and this is why I was attracted to this, this model. So when I, you know, I've been struggling with all this death stuff and what we do to people at the end of life in the hospital, and it's not always good, and it's not always to a good end, and kind of wondering, is there a better way? And what I really wanted to know was, is there a way to empower non-medical people uh, such that they don't end up in these situations and they're more informed? And then it's not just, as you said, Ryan, it's not just the medical questions. We don't, we're not just interested in the application of a mechanical ventilator or a feeding tube or dialysis. We're also interested in these deeply human questions, like, wh- what is my life for? 
why am I here? You know, <laughs> what is this world all about? What happens when we die, right? And those are questions that lots of super smart people have thought about since the beginning of time. And actually for all of recorded history, we have different cultural, religious, philosophical answers to those questions. And so I thought, wow, here's a model, comes out of the church, doesn't stay in the church, because as soon as you have the Catholic-Protestant divide, Protestants in true Protestant fashion, they make their own version. Then you have Jewish versions, you have secular versions, translated to all these different languages, sent all over the Western world. And for more than 500 years, a little bedside handbook on the preparation for death is what most people relied upon to kind of make sense of these questions, to anticipate their mortality and to prepare. Because the, the thinking kind of undergirding all of this genre of literature is that, look, death is inevitable. We all know that's going to happen. So why don't we prepare? And if we want to die well, that doesn't just happen. There's nothing we do in life that we do well without preparation. Everything requires some amount of preparation. So if we want to die well, then why don't we anticipate that? and start to do some work over the course of our lives so that we can die well. And so for, you know, the, the earliest thinking was it, going back to the mid 1300s, early 1400s, really. Um, wow. Dying poorly is dying um, with fits of anger and impatiently and with all your stuff and, you know, in a, in a spirit of greediness or, or severe doubt or despair, right? These are all the, the, the ways that people would die poorly in the late middle medieval imagination. Well, so then dying well is sort of the antithesis of that, right? It's cultivating a posture of generosity, of humility, of patience, right? Of, of hope. Um, so, so that was, you know, and then, as I said, there've been lots of different iterations, but that, that's kind of what the Ars Moriendi is and, and was. Yeah, and I think you do a great job in the book of really painting that scene of medieval Europe. Um, just the the horrific um, graphic nature of um, death by bubonic plague is something that I, I really can't fathom. I mean, from infection to death is about a week. And it involves, you know, the body basically just transforming into, you know, a hideous you know, monstrosity. And so I think putting my my myself in that place and time and trying to imagine what that's life to, or what that's like to be so surrounded by loved ones, uh, you know, old, young, like just everybody succumbing to this grisly fate. Uh, it makes sense that the, the response afterwards was probably one of desensitization and if there were traditions or things in place, a lot of those are probably lost just because of the sheer volume of the suffering. And then after afterwards, it seems like this was really a response to um, bring that civility back to the culture, to bring those rituals and rites back to the culture. And so in a way, I kind of see that as a, a prefiguring of our own world where it's not a grisly um, plague that has caused so many people to die poorly. It's actually the, in, in some cases, the medical uh, mindset itself that mm -hmm. we now have since the 1920s, you talk about in this book, how um, with progress and the ability to stave off infection and to keep people alive on life support, um, we entered a new phase of, hey, we don't need these uh, rights. We don't need community. We don't need 
a lot of what the Ars Morendi prescribed, um, we can we can pass this over to the medical establishment. They're going to cure all of our sicknesses. And you talk a lot in this book about that um, savior syndrome or the um, I forget the exact term that you use, but people come to the doctor just, you know, save me, doc, I'm dying. And so it's interesting that um, rediscovering some of this information uh, for me personally, uh, after having lost a friend and, you know, other other people in my life, uh, pets and grandparents, you know, we're faced with death, but we're never really invited into that deeper meditation on it. Mm-hmm. And just in the last couple of weeks reading this, I feel like it has reframed my own um, timeline of life. You know, we were born into this very modern era. It seems like we're going to live forever. There's always something new to get or a way to, you know, stave off illness. And now I kind of see that my life is bracketed, that this is sort of this beautiful middle chapter where I have my health, where I have my, my kids and all of these things. And, and having that awareness that I am going to die and that it's up to me to live well and then die well, I think is what that wisdom of the Ars Morendi talks about. And we haven't had a plague. We've had a pandemic. We haven't had a plague like this last one, but it sounds like in a sense, we are having um, kind of the similar numbers of people that are dying without grounding in a, a deeper um, presence or a, an acceptance of life and acceptance of death. So in your book, you, you kind of break out the chapters by um, you know, these, these different themes. And the first one that you really dwell on is this uh, finitude, uh, that acknowledging that we are mortal um, and not in a, a doom and gloom kind of way, but in a way that invites then the bigger questions. So what? What, what do I find meaning in? Uh, how do I want to live? Death is not necessarily good or bad, um, but just acknowledging that possibility of death while we're still healthy is sort of a, a, a precursor to then dying um, gladly and willfully. So with that kind of umbrella of finitude, how does that enable different patients or different people that you've experienced to uh, die well? Yeah, no, there's so much there, Ryan. My mind is, is going. Um, maybe I'll just say this, that uh, last Saturday, a group of us who are interested in kind of end of life stuff in New York City hosted a workshop. Uh, It's kind of a pilot. It was our first one, but just to gauge interest in, in these issues. And I'll say I did none of the organizing. Some colleagues of mine did it all. And I was just kind of along for the ride, but uh, a young mom came up to me afterwards and she said, I was completely blown away. Um, And actually she had had childcare fall through on Saturday morning. So she had brought her seven-year-old for part of it, who was like, you know, plugged into her iPad during it. Although I'm a big fan of uh, talking about these things with kids as well. But she said, I was completely blown away. I have never up to this point in my life paused to think about my finitude, to think about the fact that my years are finite. I mean, I know it abstractly, right? We know it abstractly. And she said, this has changed my life because suddenly it is making me think about what I value and what I want to do and my relationships. It's making me reassess everything. And it was a two hour workshop on a Saturday morning. And that was really interesting to me in part because I've been in this space for so many years that um, 
you know, I'm happy to have these conversations with everyone. But yeah, there's a lot of sort of young, healthy, you know, pre-middle age folks running around out there that are busy by like soccer practice and everything else who really haven't paused to think about this. Um, so I will say one thing and maybe not um, not a, a corrective to what you said, but maybe an, an, uh, an amending. My argument is not, and I, I think it's wrong to say that we need to die willfully and glad, gladly as the, the, some of the earlier Ars Moriendi texts suggested. Um, I think it's perfectly natural to fear that which we have never experienced, right? So the fear of death, even for people who are profoundly at peace, you know, I think of the, the little old lady patients I've taken care of. Um, when I used to practice medicine on the south side of Chicago, uh, there were um, some some little, uh, I say little old ladies, but elder, I should say elderly um, Baptist women who uh, just felt like they were at peace. You know, they made their peace with their maker. They were ready to go home. You know, it's that sort of language. And uh, even when one has that sort of serenity or equanimity in the face of death, the kind of sense of feeling a little unsettled or straight up fearful is not wrong. And I, I just want to articulate that because I think it's a very human, uh, it's a very human reaction. It's a very human emotion to something we've never experienced. Um, that being said, I, I tell the story actually in, in both of my books. I have an academic book before this one. I tell versions of a story of a patient that I cared for uh, while I was writing the first book. And actually she outlived her diagnosis. And so I was caring for her while I was writing the second book. And um, she, the first day I met her was when she had just received this terminal diagnosis and she wasn't expected to live, I think, six months, but then she lived for, I think, about five years after that. And she said, you know, I'm dying. I know I'm dying. I need you to help me through this. And I said, well, you know, this is what I think about. This is what I write about. So let's talk. And she and I ended up uh, talking a lot about uh, about the Ars Moriendi, but about what it might mean today and what it might mean for her, because certainly we're not living in you know Europe, Western Europe in the late Middle Ages. Uh, we have different sort of social authorities, different authorities in our lives, um, and we have different ways that we make sense of the existential questions. But she took some very, very deliberate steps that aligned quite beautifully with the Ars Moriendi not only in terms of articulating sort of wishes with regard to healthcare as she got very sick, but also really nurturing her community and talking with, she, she um, uh, uh, ended up uh, separating from her husband uh, and, um, and she gave me permission to write about her, which is why I feel quite free to also tell her story because she gave me explicit permission. Um, but she had a network of really close friends. She didn't have any children. So she had a network of really close friends. Um, and she nurtured and nurtured those relationships through her dying process and also kind of gave people tasks like this is how I need you to support me in this capacity, in this capacity. And um, and her community stepped up. And so she talked about her finitude. She also talked about what gave her hope and what her goals were before she got too sick to finish them. And, and everyone kind of stepped up. It was really extraordinary. And when she ultimately died, um, 
the, I had a friend working and who was taking care of her the day she died. She ended up dying in the hospital, which initially wasn't her wish, but she also felt ultimately that because of her breathing problems, the hospital was the safest place to die in the end. She didn't want to feel like she was suffocating. Um, my, so my friend let me know that she was in the hospital and I, uh, and that she had just died and I zipped over there. I think it was new year's day or something. And, uh, it was amazing to see her community show up. I mean, a bunch of them had already been there, but it was person after person after person. And she told me stories about these people and it was just incredible to meet them and to hear the stories of how they had served her um, and, and loved her and been part of her life all the way until the end. And I think that's what we aspire to because, Ryan, as you know, I, I contrast stories like that with the stories of people, especially in large urban centers where anonymity is kind of the thing, uh, who die alone. And the only way their bodies are discovered, whether in New York City or in Tokyo, Japan, is because of the stench of the decaying flesh and neighbors noticing that they are no longer kind of going in or coming out. And so we do want to mitigate that. I'm, I'm sort of, as you speak, thinking about why this has been such a fruitful area for me to put my focus lately. And I think that's the intent, right? By uh, just like the the woman in the, the uh, seminar that you had saying, I, I haven't taken the time to actually pause and reflect and see what this means. And I think most of what I've been doing and talking to people about lately are along these topics of values. And what do what do I value individually? What do I value? What do we value as a culture? And in today's world, I think it's increasingly hard to um, to have have a feeling that we are all part of one bigger story together. I think today it's it's as hard as ever to you know, answer those questions of uh, what am I, what do I value? What does my life mean? And what am I ultimately in pursuit of, if anything? And taking the time to um, think about life as preparation for death is a very, it, it flips the whole thing on its head. You know, no longer am I living in this moment pursuing um, specific uh, objectives that are going to make me you know, momentarily happy or wealthy or, or anything like that. I'm really uh, having to ask the question, when it's all said and done, what will my life have meant? Mm -hmm. And I think about my friend who um, passed away recently, and he was a young, a young person. I mean, he was 38 years old. Uh, mm -hmm. He had had two bouts with cancer, but he had beat it both times. Uh, we were out at a party, you know, two days before he just uh, passed away in his sleep. And so for the for a community of young people, not even terminally ill patients or people who are expecting these, um, you know, uh, terminal uh, kind of slow declines. I mean, just recognizing that just like my friend, you know, my life could literally end in any given day, any given moment. And that dealing with his his passing and then kind of coming into some of these um wisdoms, I guess, you know, the, the Ars Merendi prescribes these um, antidotes to the temptations when we're dying. You mentioned some of them, things like impatience and greed. And uh, there's a lot of things that just when we're, when we're faced with our end, we have the temptation into these um, not so pleasant ways of behavior. And it just seems like this is, like you say, it, it truly is a meditation on living. Mm 
living today, right now, uh, out of this center that recognizes that this is all finite. And because of that, this is all the more beautiful because it's, it's not leading towards something that I'm going to get more and more and more. Um, you know, this is really it. And, you know, it's, it's easy, I think, to take this topic and, and to medicalize it or even philosophize it. But as an actual person who is uh, living, breathing and um, experiencing life, uh, I, I'm just going to kind of turn the question on you. I'm, I'm curious, you know, where in your lives, where in your life have you had these, uh, these deeper struggles? I mean, someone who writes a book like this, I think clearly is um, also in that same process of um, figuring out, you know, who you are, how your life matters. And, you know, these, these teachings, you dug them up, you presented them to the world. Uh, how are you also living them? Yeah, <laughs> ah, it's waiting to see what the punchline was. Wow, you you turned it on me. Um, well, yeah, so I guess first I just want to say you've mentioned your friend a couple of times and I, I'm really sorry to hear about him because 38 is, is young and that's hard. That's really hard. Um, yeah, so again, you, you packed so much into this question. Um, um, uh, so where to start? I will say that uh, even if the project maybe was initially motivated by watching, feeling like I was sort of even complicit in the suffering of people as they were dying because I was required to continue uh, providing intensive care, the the, the deeper questions are both preceded and sort of come after, you know, those experiences. Um, I, I too am struck by uh, the thought of, you know, who will be at my deathbed and what am I doing about those relationships now? That's something I think about, uh, just like my patient, Diana. Um, sometimes I joke with my kids when they're particularly poorly behaved that they mm -hmm. need to shape up and prepare themselves to change my diapers when I'm old. Um, <laughs> but right, this is part of it. This is, this is part of it. But also this idea of, you know, we talk a lot in the U.S. about uh, estate planning. Um, we don't and maybe we talk about legacy to the extent of some project or some accomplishment that we'll leave behind. But we don't really talk about the, the kinds of characters that we've developed as a legacy. So in the very last chapter, as I was writing the very last chapter, my grandmother died and she was just shy of her 98th birthday. And this incredible, incredible woman of grace, mm is probably the best way to describe her. She was beautiful inside and outside and um, deeply faithful and full of love and grace. And, you know, in the last couple of years, her memory had really started to go and I would visit her, but she never was quite sure who I was, but she was always very polite and, um, and gracious. And what was so powerful to me about her death was 
not not that I wasn't there, um, not that she hadn't suffered, although I was glad that she hadn't suffered. Um, but what was so powerful to me was this thought that this woman of so much beauty and grace is gone from the planet. And that, like, we are the worst for that. We are the worst because she is gone. And, and I, I think maybe you feel that way with your, the loss of your friend, mm. but there's something about death that it tear, even when there's a relief of suffering, you know, there's something about death that tears a fabric in the whole of our lives. But to think of the kind of character that my grandmother exemplified and the way she lived her life, um, you know, Oh, so many things, right? Being a woman in the era that she was a woman, not being educated, sort of being married for a zillion years to a, a overbearing husband, right? Um, and her uh, quiet acts of resistance and her steadfast love and commitment to her family. It, I mean, you can't make that stuff up, right? It's incredible. But am I becoming that kind of a person, right? So when we think about our legacies, our legacies of character, you know, of faith, my grandmother, um, you know, she, she prayed for every single one of her grandkids every day, whether they believed or not, she, like, she was going to do that, right? She was going to, um, you know, get down on her knees and talk to God and intercede on behalf of every single person in her family. And that was just this, these, these quiet acts of resistance, but are we cultivating the kind of character? Are we living into the fullness of the kind of um, people that we aspire to be remembered as, you know? And I think those are, so that's where death is really about life, right? That's where dying is really about living. Um, so I think about things like that, especially when I'm you know, frustrated by my children and uh, it's less than peaceful in the apartment here in New York. Um, how, how am I, how am I cultivating the kind of character uh, where my children can say what I just said about my grandmother one day? Mm. Um, and then what kinds of practices uh, and beliefs am I passing on? So I, you know, I was raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition and am uncomfortable in that space. Um, I recognize that our world is very diverse and that that doesn't make sense to everyone. But I think, um, you know, talking to my kids and, and, and framing existential questions with regard to to God and, and God's uh, awareness and care for those who suffer is is helpful. And that's language that we have, you know, in my culture, so to speak. So I. Uh, I certainly bring that to the table. I'll say that, you know, I was, uh, I was working on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. Uh, well, all the way through, I just was working before Christmas, um, in December, taking care of Omicron patients. And, but the, you know, the first wave was really, really crazy here. And they, there were people who were staying in hotels, doctors who were staying in hotel and nurses staying in hotels because, uh, they didn't want to take COVID home. You know, there's the whole range. And, we talked about it as a family, recognizing we don't really understand this virus. We don't know how lethal it is. We don't know if I'm particularly susceptible. 
on paper, I should be okay, but who knows, right? There's no vaccine. And we talked regularly as a family about the very real possibility that one of us will die of COVID. That was, we had to talk about it. We had to talk about it because there were so many unknowns and I was in the line of fire, so to speak, every day. And and I think um, those conversations then, uh, we should be having those conversations, but then they open doors to, to some of the deeper deeper conversations. And and so I would say, especially in the lockdown when you know we're in this tiny New York apartment and and kids are working from home and my kids don't even know how to use computers because they hadn't used them before. And it's a nightmare, right? It's a nightmare for all the working parents. It's, it's a nightmare for everybody. And there was a lot of, you know, my daughter screaming at each other. And my husband and I would say, look, guys, we don't know if we're going to get through the other side of this pandemic and all four of us be alive. So we need to, we need to practice treasuring one another now. We need to practice that. We need to practice kindness to one another. And so we were just, it was like every, <laughs> it was like every day we were having these conversations because tensions were high and the reality was such that we needed to have these conversations. You know, now we're kind of out of the thick of it. Omicron's on the wane. We have the conversations less frequently, but it's been so drilled into my kids' heads that uh, <laughs> that they're they're ready. But I, yeah, I mean, this is we need we need to be talking about these things for sure. Yeah, um, a lot there to pull on as well. And your your story in the in the beginning there of your um, your grandma passing recently and. Uh, it is amazing to just see these people that are so special and beautiful. And um, yeah, I think that is part of the reason why uh, my, my friend's death was so affecting. He was, he was, you know, no one could argue that he wasn't just a wonderful person who was out there bringing joy to the world. Uh, mm-hmm. When, when he died, his um, he had a procession here in uh, old town, Fort Collins that, there were so many people, it would it was like stopping traffic on like three or four streets at once because so many people came out just to celebrate him. And when I reflect on, you know, what about his character made him that worthy of of the love of people? I think it was because he just he lived with that same uh kind of care and concern for others. And um, you know, I th- I think that he lived well. And unapologetically so, as long as I've known him. And so even though, you know, he passed away quite unspectacularly, in a way it was kind of perfect. You know, it was, there was no suffering involved. It was, you know, right after everyone had seen him at his peak. And yeah, I think that in the, in the stages of grief and things that we went through, a lot of it was just that disbelief that the world had this, this amazing person in it. And now we were all here to continue on, but the world, you know, was, was missing that. Um, so in, in a way it just shows me how, how deeply important all of us are, even if it's just to one other person, or even if it's just to, you know, the pets that we take care of or the, the people that we interact with, um, it just, it really drives home the point that we are, um, woven into a community mm-hmm. and that, uh, a lot of what I think people spend their time concerned about, you know, individual uh, elevation of status or uh, acquiring of material things in the face of death, none of that really matters. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's not even that the goal is then to be, you know, remembered and have a big procession. But uh, 
those little threads, I think, add up to this bigger human story that we're telling. And it's my belief that if more of us were to take the time to ask these questions and to realign some of our values now, the overall health of society would be improved because we would have more people that were living well, dying well, appreciating each other, uh, focusing on community. So it's it's not lost on me that having a global pandemic is really an opportune time for us all to pause and say, wow, we were really close there. You know, it wasn't quite the bubonic plague, but it sure could have been. And knowing how quickly something like that can happen. I mean, we all remember, you know, in March of 2020, how quickly the world just changed. And I think that, you know, that's a global scale, um, you know, medical determination, but that could be in the cards for any of us at any time in our own kind of little microcosm. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm just kind of pontificating here, but reading a book like this that actually was was challenging. Like it was very challenging to read some parts of this. I had to shed a lot of layers. I had to confront my own uh, squeamishness just with, you know, recognizing my own body as a body and that it, you know, can fall victim to these different uh, illnesses. And um, actually that's a, that's an interesting line of um, conversation. So you mentioned sort of the spiritual component of this and you mentioned in this book that for a long time, that that uh, service to the community was kind of officiated by the priesthood, or you know, people would go to these places of care or worship. And you mention in this book, um, you know, seeing and I, I have the name written down. I'm probably going to forget it. Oh, it's the Eisenheim altarpiece. Mm -hmm. And so you actually talk about even in our um, legacy of art, uh, there are different people who have tried to render both the you know, just the horror of the loss of body, the loss of, you know, your mental uh, faculties, just like the real grisly. And I think of Tibetan Buddhist paintings, too. There's a lot of, you know, deities like Kali that really represent this, you know, just the, the awful of the awful of the awful. Yet mm -hmm. in that, there's this uh, recognition that we are, you know, we, we are attended. We are cared for by our community. And um, actually, that's, a, that's an interesting line of um, conversation. Do you see hopeful signs that we are maybe embracing or ready to embrace some of these questions again? Yeah, great, great question. I'll just say quickly, I, I do, yeah, I, I frame this sort of chapter on the meditation of the decay of the human body around this masterpiece of art. And uh, I do that in part because I was told to go see this painting, this masterpiece, um, because it was dedicated to victims of the bubonic plague. And if I'm writing a book on play, riffing off of the bubonic plague, I should, I should see this masterpiece. So I went. But what I was really taken by was this kind of disgusting creature in the corner of one of the paintings who really was death and decay personified. And... That got me thinking about even the, even the way I think about my own aging, right? Um, I was a runner when I was younger. Now I have bad knees or you go to the dentist or, you know, need to get those readers, right? These little things, even as a 45-year-old in good health, these little things that sort of remind me that actually the, the end is coming, right? And why is it that um, 
you know, I still haven't bought readers uh, when I should probably buy them. So I don't do this all the time. Um, or why, you know, why is it that we are so uncomfortable uh, acknowledging that our bodies themselves are decaying? And I, yeah, I've seen this, like this comes into relief in the, in the clinic all the time, especially for the, you know, the 60 year old executive who uh, has always been an top-notch health and suddenly I tell him actually your EKG is concerning or actually your blood pressure is through the roof and now you need to be on meds for the rest of your life you know and this kind of inability to fathom our own weakness our own vulnerability our own dependency on others and it yeah so that's why I wrote that chapter uh yeah it's a, it's a little in your face I guess um, but I, I try to do it gently. Um, so this question, though, of, well, okay, COVID pandemic and the effect on the way we think about our finitude. Here's the thing. I finished writing this book before the pandemic even was, you know, at all on the scene. Um, the book manuscript was was due uh, in the beginning of 2019. And then a full year later, I think that's right, or maybe at the beginning of 2020. Anyway. A long time later, it's published, and I riff off the bubonic plague to describe how we need to be thinking about our finitude, not thinking this book is going to be released in the midst of a global pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in 100 years, right? I uh, have probably given more than 100 talks at this point since the book was published, um, you know, the vast majority on Zoom, and I have been amazed that Baby boomers, baby boomers have done what, what I thought, what I was hoping people would do. And that is they read the book and they're like, yeah, I've got some work to do. I've got some work to do. I'm aging. I'm high risk for getting sick with COVID. Uh, like I'm retiring soonish anyway. I've got, you know, the, the financial stuff to think about, the healthcare stuff to think about, the family stuff to think about. I've had baby boomers read the book and go reconcile with their adult children from whom they were estranged. I've had them get their wills in order. I mean, they all do this after reading the book, but then they tell me about it. Uh, I, I've had some, you know, I, I get random mail and email and snail mail uh, to my office from people who are reflecting on different things. They're almost always older. When I speak to groups that have, you know, let's just say 50 and younger in them, there still is a lot of, a lot of reluctance to go there. Um, I mean, one of the things, Ryan, when when you contacted me and I watched some of your your uh, videos, I thought, wow, you know, here's a guy who is he's wired to think about this stuff. Um, and what I've realized is, and that's why I kind of started out saying, I guess I'm an existentialist because I've realized in talking to thousands of people at this point about about my work that there are some people who are just wired to be able to sit with these issues to, to even like the door gets open and they want to go further and deeper. And then there are people who are so wired for arbitrary descriptions of success and a sense of kind of, yeah, I guess success at all costs. And that translates into not thinking about death. Um, 
Very rarely have I had people shut me down entirely, uh, kind of like, you have a doctor death. You know, I, I've gotten that a couple of times, but for the most part, not. Uh, people are, are able to, to kind of warm up to consideration of death. Most people, I think. Uh, but there are some people who are just naturally, you know, more inclined to go there than others. Um, so, so big picture to answer your question, I thought COVID would do more to change the conversation, but because COVID has not really affected kids or young people, um, because it's been a, a primarily targeting older folks and folks who are already suffering from profound illness, uh, it has not had the same impact that I kind of wondered if it might at the outset of the pandemic. Hmm. It's it's interesting. You mentioned at one point that in the original um, the original booklet with the, the illustrations, they had I think it's five different um, temptations, and fear was not one of them. And you have a whole chapter on fear, and and that was one of the ones that was one of the more difficult ones for me because it is uh, having to stare down what is that going to feel like when you're actually faced with that finitude? But fear was not really treated in the old days. And you hypothesize that it's because in the old days, uh, there was not anywhere near the sense of control that we think we have today. So in the old days, if you were, if you were getting sick or you were frail or you were on your way out, like the fear was there, but it was almost pointless to dwell on it because there was nothing you could do about it. And I think even generationally with each successive gener generation, I feel like those different, um, I don't know, uh, whether it's technology or advancements in, in medicine or uh, just the assumption that I can meditate this away, I'm going to be fine. The, the sense of control, I think, gets stronger as we get more to the more recent generations, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And therefore, inviting that conversation at all might be the acknowledgement of a loss of control, which is, you know, the scariest of all scaries for a lot of um, people. But yeah, I, it's interesting to me that uh, we have um, a 10 year old son and a six year old daughter. And when our friend died um, again, you know, we had a, a dog die. That was our family dog. She was 16 years old. And that was, you know, a very hard, uh, you know, night and couple weeks after our, our dog died, but the kids were still young enough that, you know, it, it didn't really register. But with, um, you know, the passing of our friend, we've been in a lot of conversations as a family. And it's amazing the difference between a 10 year old and a six year old and just that object permanence and what it actually means. But I think that, um, like you said, there is that sort of sweet spot that that younger age that is open and receptive to these these questions and, and recognition that that's part of life as well. And maybe it's just the case that with the, the amount of technology we have and everyone's watching, uh, you know, shows about the ER where they're bringing back people, for, you know, with different cures or I don't know, we, 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 we abstract everything so much and we expect that if and when I ever have to face that, there will, you know, all it takes is a couple more years and maybe we'll cure cancer or maybe, uh, you know, I won't have to worry about these things at all. I just watched a YouTube video uh, from a channel that is, you know, all scientifically grounded talking about um, immortality and, you know, all of the pursuit for, you know, reversing aging and reversing these things. So 
yeah, in a, in a sense with COVID as a, a little example of this sort of cultural um, perspective, we saw a lot of that um, inner questioning of a lot of things and even traffic slowing down and the birds coming back. And I remember my wife and I were hopeful that, wow, people are really going to learn from this. And when we come out of it, you know, there's going to be more of an appreciation on what's really important. And um, I don't know that that's necessarily happened or if people are just so hungry to get back to old ways that it's it's almost just catapulting things forward. But, you know, in yeah, writing this book just, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'll just say quickly that, you know, we talked about the Ars Moriendi, this kind of art of dying genre of literature that was really so popular for more than 500 years, but it dies out during the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920, because you have four years of World War I with millions and millions of deaths worldwide, including civilians. And then you have two years of sustained global flu pandemic with four waves, epidemiologists think, and millions and millions of people dying. So you have six years of sustained death. And you get to the end of that. And in the U.S., you have the roaring 20s, a time of immense economic prosperity. I mean, if you can imagine like getting to the end of, of COVID after six years, right? The last thing anybody's going to want to do is like sit around and think about their finitude. Because we're like we're done with restrictions, right? We want to get on with life. And this is exactly when these 500 years of mourning rituals, of community-based practices on preparing for death, fizzle out. They fizzle out because people want to get on with life. And so then the challenge becomes, well, how do we hold those two intention? Like, how do we live fully, but understand that the fullness of human flourishing occurs when we're also have an eye on the end game, right? We need to constantly be keeping one eye, you know, or both eyes on the end and also in front of us. And I think that's when we live sort of the fullest lives, uh, and then also um, die, in a sense, the best deaths. Yeah, well said. Um, what do you what do you think about that? Do you think that it's a, a problem? I mean, clearly, you wrote a book on the topic, but where do you see this current culture heading, you know, catapulting out of COVID as we are? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that the sense right now is let's just, you know, let's just get on with things. Um, let's get on with life. Let's get back to our, our global travel. Never mind the carbon footprint, right? Um, let's get back to our in-person conferences and workshops. Never mind the fact that they cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's like, let's get back to all of our vacationing, our cruise ships, right? You know, I mean, there's this real sense of having to get back and, um, yeah, the pause is over. It was a pause. I mean, maybe it'll be a reset. Some have called for that. I hope so. I hope so. But I think that to make to make something a reset in a way that is countercultural takes a lot of commitment. I mean, I, you know, your own, um, I think your own story, as you've described it on some of your videos, demonstrates that. But you have to sort of, you have to, commit to the project of, of rethinking through what matters. Um, again, like we don't, we don't do anything in life well if we don't prepare and, and death is included in that. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, just, um, the, the act of reading a book like this or having a conversation about death 
is to take some steps in that direction and to find, as in most things, that there there is wisdom out there. Um, a lot of times I'm just, I'm so surprised when I discover wisdom that is so deep and moving and important. And it's like, where has this been all my life? Like, how how am I only hearing about this now? And this is a testament to that as well. And even, you know, you talk about uh, rituals and um, you, you talk about uh, Jewish uh, rituals and the, the time span between death and burial and then the seven days after and the 30 days after. And, you know, I just experienced and, and my family did and my community did this very uh, destabilizing loss, but we had no signposts. We had no... Uh, even permission to take uh, time out to say, no, I, I really need to focus on this. This is, you know, I can't just go back to work. You know, we have to kick and fight to even get a little bit of breathing room to do some of this work. But the information is there. And just knowing that it's there, I think, uh, arms us so that if and when these things <laughs> inevitably happen, uh, we can we can find some support and we can find some constructive ways to move forward. Uh, yeah. And so if anything, it's not that anyone is, like you said earlier, you know, it's not a mandate that we have to die with grace or well, or, or any which way. It's really an opportunity. And That's it's right. one that has been known about for as long as there have been people. And each one of us, you know, can take it or leave it. But there's some pretty amazing uh, benefits to to taking the time to recognizing one's own mortality to uh, living, you know, with uh, other people in your community at heart and not just what to me, you know, this might just be my own perspective, but it, it just seems like we're in such an individualized culture that those threads that tie us deeper into a more meaningful uh, connected experience with people are really being plucked apart. And that this is um, in, a, in a pretty spectacular way in a pretty challenging way uh, starting to mend some of those threads, whether it's just for one person who picks up this book or, you know, hopefully more people uh, come come into these experiences through people that are uh, living and then dying well. I mean, you talk about how uh, there are different people throughout history or just, you know, small people or, you know, small stories of people dying well. And in that, they set a template. They show it's possible. They They allow everyone in attendance to kind of rehearse their own uh, eventual demise. And so information and just experience like this feels feels powerful. It feels timely and important because um, my interest is in in living to the fullest and and enjoying this life and not to be depressed about it or upset, but to recognize the gift that it is. I do have one more uh, question for you. And this came up as I was uh, seeing your email response and noticing that your initials are LSD. And I, I'm curious if the conversation has come up often or if you've, you know, written chapters about it that maybe never made it to the book. But um, it is one of my experiences in life that I I regard as a kind of practice for death, which was with psychedelic experiences. And we're seeing a whole branch of um, psychotherapy and end of life, you know, care with substances like psilocybin, MDMA, uh, things like that. Do you see that fitting into this overall puzzle in, in any ways that you've thought about? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I have zero personal experience. My parents were hippies, so it, you can take that up with them. But um, uh, I have zero personal experience. Uh, I mean, or prof- you know, or professional. And I actually, that's what I was intending when I said that. Um, I do know, though, that many people are starting to work through their existential anxiety with psychedelics. Um, you know. I think the extent to which it's helpful sort of in a permanent sense, right? Does this require kind of monthly psychedelic experiences? Is that, you know, I, I mean, I think some of that remains to be seen and um, probably needs some more attention before we can draw dramatic conclusions. But I do know that uh, there definitely are folks who are working with psychedelics to allow people to kind of go into parts of themselves that they may have walled off and think through what or think through experience. I'm not quite sure how it happens. Their existential anxieties and dread. Um, So I think it remains to be seen for sure, but it's out there. Yeah. Just, I mean, personally, I, 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 I think, and until I, until I read this book, this really challenged me to say, you know, what am I basing this on? But I have thought for a while that I was prepared to die at any moment because I had had experiences where um, it it felt like a practice, you know, like uh, even to engage in one of these experiences is to say, you know what, I'm surrendering, surrendering control. I'm surrendering my, you know, usual kind of uh, image of self or whatever it is for you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it to me is also one of these interesting uh pieces of our culture that were previously available, whether it was through meditation or rituals or inebriation, or, you know, there was access to this dimension where you don't have such a, such a strong ego. And I think you even wrote in here that, you know, for a, a highly individualized society with that emphasis on individual death seems catastrophic, irreversible. And Mm -hmm. And we have had, uh, as as humans, access to experiences or rituals that have shown us the, I don't know, that that might not actually be the case, that we might not be just, I am Ryan, I'm sitting in this chair, this is my life, when I'm dead, this is it, this is mm-hmm. my only mode of, of thinking and feeling. And so um, it does excite me, just as a, a person interested in these topics, to, you know, read a book like this, and then in, you know, another conversation, talk to uh, some friends of mine that are, um, you know, doing MDMA assisted therapy with with uh, individuals mm-hmm. in a professional setting. So I, it, I had someone comment in a previous video that was saying, with the, what feels like a destabilizing of our global culture right now, we, we've lost in a sense, these um, directions that we're all moving but we're having a lot more individual awakenings, individual experiences, individual, um, I don't know, moments of meditation that's outside of a mainstream. And I guess I can only hope that uh, work like yours and conversations like these are having an effect of leading more people to, even if it's for a moment on their deathbed or hopefully years before that, so then they can really live you know, deeply, fully with, with appreciation but um, just having those moments of, of awakening, big and small. And I think you've, you've been witness to some of those in your own work. And um, 
you know, the, the style with which you write is clear that this is coming from a place of compassion and experience and hope. So, um, yeah, uh, just, just personally, you know, as you, as you look at the days and weeks and months ahead, uh, where, where is your own gravity taking you? Where, where do you see, you know, hopefulness or, um, places that you are applying your, your compassion and brilliance? <laughs> well, you know, there's so, I mean, there's so, there's so much work to do, right? Whether it's my patients or my students or my kids, right. Or my community, um, it really is the relationships, though. I mean, when I think about where the value is, like where what I value and what's also the most rewarding, to put it in really crass terms, what gives me the best reward on my time investment, it is absolutely the relationships, right? Um, investing, teaching students, watching them grow and discover, right? Caring well for patients, watching them get better or struggle through the question, these existential questions of why they are suffering and what this means. Um, and certainly, as you know, Ryan, kids, family, communities, so much richness there, right? So I think here in the, where it's whatever, 16 degrees today, I'm just looking forward to warm weather and flower blossoms and getting outside and, uh, and really trying to live life with, with those I love and, you know, put the energy, put the energy there. So, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, beautifully said it's a lot warmer here, but that spring around the corner, February is always such a hard month, but, um, I love that you, that you kind of, um, wrapped it back into that question. Uh, it's how you ended your book as well, but just that question of what matters in the end and what gives your life meaning. And regardless of whether it's in the, in the face of death or not, that question in and of itself, I think is such an important one to to ask and to take time to um, focus on, because uh, as you said, you know, when, when you're faced with your own, when you're faced with death, it puts an urgency on things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if family is important, then being close to family is being very important. And if we're living with just sort of this, you know, oh, I'm going to die eventually, but you know, I'll get to those things later. Family might be really important, but you might not be taking the steps to, you know, repair estranged relationships or, you know, prioritize your, time with your children over, you know, making an extra, you know, bucket work or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think uh, that was one of the things that I was really left with is that for most of us, you know, family and a sense of purpose and um, yeah, community relationships. And for a lot of people, spirituality, those things are really what's important. And if anything, death is just that reminder that um, there is a timeline. And that this, you know, if today is a good day, that is, that is a miracle and that is a gift to be enjoyed. And it's, um, it's kind of foolish, I think, to put these questions off until we are um, really under the gun, so to speak, to figure it out. So I, I just want to thank you for taking your time today to speak with me and for writing this beautiful book that uh, clearly has had an effect. And I hope that um, those listening uh, got something out of it as well. And we'll check out the book is uh, The Lost Art of Dying. And uh, Lydia Dugdale, thank you very much for, for taking your time. Pleasure. Pleasure to talk with you, Ryan. Thanks so much.